This is the What If Podcast. My name is Ryan. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, You are about to listen to part two of What If You Died. We loved part one and we're really excited to get to part two. Before we get there, we just wanted to uh, let you know that we've had a huge influx of listeners over the past few weeks. And A, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. You guys are awesome. You guys are very awesome. Uh, If you could, if you're listening and if you're enjoying it, do us two very fast favors. One, share anything related to the podcast on your social media. Tell your friends. We don't do any traditional advertising, so any word of mouth that you do means the world to us. And two, if you could go to iTunes and click rate or review and give us a quick rating and a quick review, if you like the show, that would mean the world to us as well well it's uh it's really really significant for for our listenership and for everything about us keeping this thing going so uh so please if you could do that as well that would be amazing also we want to double down on a really quick thing that's cool and coming up soon march 21st if you're in the twin cities we are doing our first live show at the nomad world pub over in minneapolis uh it starts at 7 p.m it is free we would love to see you there we are having a couple special guests join us for the evening. One is the mega super homie Eric Mason. Uh, the other one we can't announce just yet, but his name might rhyme with Shmish Moshmes. Um, Different rhymes every week. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, you know. If you don't know by now, it doesn't matter to you. But uh, We also might stick around and get drunk with you and play some songs afterwards, too. So it's going to be a good time. Uh, March 21st. Come hang out with us at the Nomad in Minneapolis. It's free. It's going to be fun. We can't wait. And uh, with that, we're going to dive back into part two of uh, our last week's episode that we're really excited to get to you with uh, on What If You Died with the What If Podcast. Oh. back and it's the what it podcast and my name is still ryan copperud and i'm still spencer worth davis hi spencer what's up we're looking at part two of what if you died uh stop right now if this is the first time you've ever heard the podcast don't stop stop right now (laughs) go back an episode play that whole episode all 90 minutes of it and then come back to right now because none of this will make sense it won't be enjoyable it won't be fun None of this will make sense. The last 30 minutes of the previous episode is probably as good as our podcast has been so far. So you might want to check out that part. Yeah. And, but like, but listen to the whole thing because we're going to talk about things that were both included in that last 30 minutes and also, uh, and, and also the full thing. So if you haven't listened to that, this episode is going to be garbage ass trash. This is a part (laughs) two in the most serious sense. Don't watch the sequel. If you haven't seen the first one, it won't make a goddamn bit of, uh, know how in your brain piece. All right. So, what if you died? Yes. Spoiler we're, alerts aside. Yeah, we're talking we, about near-death experiences. And we left last time with my dad, Dr. Michael Worth Davis's story about his near-death experience when he was seven years old. Yes, we did. And because of time, we didn't really get to get into uh, discussing that and, you know, maybe what, what our thoughts are on that and, and any possible explanations of that. So, yeah, let's start there. Uh, yeah. That first, was your first time hearing the story, correct? A hundred percent my first time hearing that story. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, well, goddamn, <laughs> Dr. Michael Ward Davis. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to well goddamn people forever because 
They're doing a good job of it for this uh, series of episodes. I guess, like, my thoughts and feelings are so much less important to me right now. I mean, I have them, and I'm definitely going to share them shortly. But, like, I want to know instantly, you know, so you went to your pop's house to record this? You brought the mics and everything, and you you said that Yeah, if you notice that interview sounded a little bit different, it was done in his living room room rather than our studio. Yeah, um, but what, I mean, like... Before, during, after driving home, I mean, mm-hmm. how did you feel? Like, that's your pops who had this very, uh, you know, I mean, we we talked a little bit about this off air, but like transformative experience as a kid, you yeah. know, it was obviously very significant to him. How, how, what did you think? Well, and there were a couple moments in there that get pretty, pretty personal for me too, aside from the fact that like- I cried and, yeah, I, and right. it's not my dad. Right. There, there were some moments that were edited out of that, that, uh, you know, got, got kind of heavy. But, yeah, I bet. Uh, aside from the fact that like, if that experience goes a different way, I'm not here and you're not listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's real there, there are not one but two men that maybe shouldn't be around uh in that in that conversation that you just yeah, listened right, to right um but some of the stuff with you know towards the end when we were, when he was talking about the experience of uh people who are dying or close to death often see uh loved ones or family or friends that have that have passed before them and we were talking about it kind of got uh we went through it quickly because it's it, we were just talking to the each other and didn't really give context but what we were talking about at the end of that my grandmother my mom's mom yeah so his mother-in-law my grandmother uh died a few years ago and we were both in the room with her one day in her uh in her hospital room and she started talking to somebody that clearly was not the two of us right right and we both kind of looked at each other like is she crazy is she dreaming like what's what's going on right now and i i asked her like grandma who are you talking to and she was totally with it she could respond to me she was present yeah yeah and told the two of us about her mom that was in the room having Mm -hmm. a conversation with her at that moment right right and then went on to talk about her husband who was in the room having a conversation with her at that moment neither of whom had been alive for years years yeah right um and so that uh, yeah, there were there were some moments that, aside from just the story that he told, that where it's like, I I don't know what to make of that stuff. I was right. there, I experienced it firsthand. Right. I don't have the first clue as to what was going. You know, is that the easy answer is that's an old woman with dementia, and who knows what her brain is doing? Sure. But how many thousands of stories are there that sound exactly yeah. like that? Yeah, absolutely. And what struck me throughout his story is. The juxtaposition of how personal... Sorry, just to interject really quickly before you say that and hold that exact thought. This was your first time hearing this story in this amount of detail, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. So I I had heard bits and pieces of this story as a kid and, you know, throughout my childhood. Um, That recording that you heard was the first time we've ever sat down and, and talked through the story in any depth. And there were many parts of that story that I had never heard before. Wow. Word. Um, but yeah, what struck, what stood out to me throughout the story was the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of how personal and unique it was to him. Yeah. Yeah. And what an impact it's had on his life for almost 60 years now right. on a seemingly a daily basis. It sounds right, like. Right. With 
juxtaposing that with how similar it is to so many other people's stories. Yeah. You know, in yeah. the in the first episode we talked about the those nine elements that Ray Moody found to be common amongst most or most people's of... near death experiences. Right. And my dad's story has almost all of them. I'm not going to lie, bro. It kind of freaked me out. Yeah. Because like you said, that was my first time hearing your dad's story. (laughs) And I'm listening to that being like, okay, so this dude, Ray, I'm listening to all of the things that he's heard in his collection of a hundred plus versions of this exact same type of story. And then we listen to literally your dad, who I've met multiple times story. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Like he fits a lot of elements. He of checked the pattern, almost all of those boxes. Right. And your dad hasn't read Raymond Moody's books. Your dad doesn't know about like. Well, and, and what, one of the parts that I, I had to. Your cut, dad knows about a lot of things. For the I'm just, I just mean, I just mean to say can't that. Read? <laughs> that was not the implication. The implication was that he is not into right. this type of stuff that we are per se into. Right. Um, and actually one of the things that got, that we talked about that didn't make it onto the, the version of the interview that you guys heard. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, you guys talked for like an hour and a half. Or yeah. More. Longer, yeah. longer than what made it onto the show just for, sure, for sure. time's sake. Right. Um, one of the things he mentioned was that because he was so young and because there were some lasting health effects such as, you know, he had an injection, two injections directly into his heart. He had the permanent hearing damage. insane to me, but they, because he was without oxygen to his brain for a while. They had to check for brain damage and things like that. Yeah. And so he had to, uh, he had to go for annual checkups with his, with several doctors to check for any lasting health implications from that experience. Right. And those, uh, checkups, those interviews were recorded so that they could compare from one year to the next in terms of when they were looking for brain damage and stuff. Oh, whoa. With your dad? Yeah. Do these exist somewhere? He does not have those tapes. They're uh, in some, I mean, they're probably gone by now. They were at right. some hospital in Ohio 50 sure, years ago. Sure, sure, 60 years ago almost. Yeah. Um, but so even if he was aware of some of those things that are common in near-death experiences, he certainly wasn't when he was seven. And he was still verbalizing chunks of them. Right. And he still was telling that story at right. seven, eight, nine, ten, every year as a kid before any of this stuff was in, in the right. public domain. Right. I think. Okay. So that, that stuck out to me immediately as like, cause I did the interview, you know, as I was reading a lot of other people's stories and, and doing research about this stuff. And it's like, this is sure. exactly what thousands of other people have described. Right. And you weren't even really asking, you weren't la- asking like any leading questions. You were just no, sort of I, probing, the, the, but he, <laughs> he went on all those places on his own. The, you guys didn't hear the very beginning of the interview, but it started with, so can you tell me that story? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> there, there was, you know, it's, it's, it's coming from him a hundred percent and it's yeah. granted he's had 60 years to think about it. Right. But. But that's also kind of what struck me about it when I was listening to it is, you know, I, (laughs) there are very few things that I remember from being a seven-year-old and like, don't get me wrong. I completely understand that I didn't have a very significant traumatic health experience as a seven-year-old to, to call back to, but still it's not just the elements of the health experience that he seems to have both extremely concrete and vivid memories of. It's the 
the vividness of the mental experience that he had mm-hmm. outside of being like, I had a bad fever. I was in the hospital. My grandmother and my grandfather were there. Like, no, he has, he has a very clear and vivid and op- what obviously must have been something that he's either dwelled on for remembrance or it was so clear as day when it happened that it's just never even remotely left him. Like he said about, you know, he's like, he can call back the day that you were born without even thinking about it. Yeah. This is obviously in the course of his life as a seven-year-old. On the close, level of, your, of the day your child was yeah, born. Yeah. And not to, not to invalidate any, you know, any of, you know, the fact that you're, you know, the, the experience that your dad had the day that you were born, but more to elevate the fact that this was so significant and concrete right. and vivid and important and, and, and life-changing for him as a seven-year-old that as a, like you said, he, what, he's 66 now yeah. as a 66 year old man, he can recount it. Like it was fucking yesterday. And it's still one night, of the bro. most important events, if not the most important event in his entire life. So that's the other thing I was going to say, you know, especially as it relates to what you were saying about, you know, like this is your first time really hearing this story and this amount of detail, etc. Yeah. Did, did it, I mean, did it like, did it make you look at your dad differently based on how, I mean, I, just, just as an outsider's perspective, you know, your dad said a lot of things about, about his life and who he is and who he became and why he became it and God. And like, there's this really amazing string that your dad pulls from this story. I mean, mm-hmm. did it make you as like his son think differently, look differently at him? I mean, not, not, not in any type of judgmental way, but just like, did it change the way that you look at your dad now that you know this depth of this story from him? Uh, not really only in that I, I kind of knew who he was in terms of, you know, his, his spirituality and his work and his family and the things that he values and kind of the way he approaches things. And, um, you know, when he talks about the having been in different locations around the world and sort of intuitively yeah, what <laughs> right whoa and like having ex- having been with him in in some of those experiences you were so so you can confirm this is like a thing that your dad has done before the the two that he specifically referenced in the story i was not present for um but i've been with him in, in other similar situations and just sort of knowing how he goes about life. It's sort mm-hmm. of this approach of it's probably going to work out and let's not stress out about it too much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so whether that's, you know, how are we going to get from point A to point B or just more generally, like how is th- my life going to go and right. how is this seemingly really difficult situation going to work out? Right. Um, so none of those things were really surprising. They all fit with my picture of who my dad is. Sure. Right. Right. But I had never tied those things to a specific route. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I didn't realize that those things were all related back to this one instance 60 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd heard bits and pieces or versions of that story before and just never really connected the dots. Yeah, man. Or didn't know it was as literal and as as direct of a connection as he sure. laid it out to be. Sure. And that makes a lot of sense to me in that, like, you know, 
you're a 31-ish year old dude. I'm 30, man. Give me some credit. You're going to be 31 next month, right? May. No. Two yes. months. There we go. Two months. <laughs> Whatever. You're 30. <laughs> doesn't matter. You're a 30-year-old dude. We're the same dude. age, bro. All right? We're the same age. No, I'm not trying to put you older. I'm just trying to say you're a 30-year-old dude. You, you've known your dad for the 30 years you've been alive. It makes sense to me that the, the set of characteristics that your dad is expressing about himself don't change but i do think it's super fascinating to know that a lot of those characteristics he really pulls back absolutely yeah personally on a a day-to-day what am i doing with my life basis wow yeah Yeah. like he personally roots those things in a life-changing near-death experience as as a as a first or second grader like that's and that's like, really, really, really phenomenally crazy and interesting. Not crazy. I mean, it's just, it's just fantastic to me. It's amazing. And we kind of got around to this towards in the last minute or two, but like he was saying, like, if it's, if it's not a real quote unquote experience, right. He doesn't want to know, or it almost doesn't. And, and in my mind, it doesn't matter Yeah, well, because the, the effect has been the same. Like what a, what a gift to have oh my God. an innate knowledge of what it is you're supposed to be doing where you're supposed to be both literally and figuratively and to also know that everything is kind of going to work out. Honestly, I'm writing down something now and I'll share what I wrote at the end of the last episode, but I, I listened to a significant part of your interview with your dad and I, and I, I was like, I was envious of his, um, his he's so certain of it yeah and and And, it seems like he's been so certain for so long that he's so unconcerned with it's just extra this unwavering confidence that like i'm doing the right thing and if i'm not something or somebody will let me know i'll feel it but for the most part i do the right thing and i know that i'm kind of on track with that and that and then i work hard at that and everything's going to be fine yeah and he and 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 the other thing too that i really love is it's it's very obvious that your father doesn't necessarily like buy into a very dogmatic version of what he knows in his truest core i mean maybe you know maybe i don't know in terms know. of religion and yeah, spirituality like, and stuff yeah. yeah i don't i don't know that i don't i don't know specifically whether or not your dad adheres to a specific religion as much as i know that like, i think he would consider himself a christian word yeah but in that interview he certainly does not speak to christianity in any sense well, and, and he actually he caught me off guard a little bit at the beginning he corrected me when i called it a religious experience yeah he did he was like i call this a spiritual experience and he had no beef being like this was a divine spiritual experience separate from any specific religion or what people think of religion is often wrong and i he goes to church and goes i know i kind of did this once (laughs) you kind of got it but you don't really got it but that's cool like it's close enough i like the people here (laughs) right right, right. you guys seem cool i mean like i chilled with god (laughs) and you guys didn't really do that so like i kind of get the vip treatment but like it's cool no but but but, yeah there's this undercurrent of just like comfort and confidence That yes. wherever that's stemming from, whether you it's a real in quotes thing or not, he's good. It really doesn't matter. He's good because he's also been right so far. Yeah, <laughs> like there there's been no evidence to the contrary that anything that he took away from that experience has been untrue. 
And to the and to that point, this is literally while we were listening to your dad's interview. Well, I, you had listened to it multiple times because a you were there and b you edited it, and, and then I edit all our episodes. Yeah, yes, <laughs> but I was listening to it for the first time as we played it in this room. But I literally wrote the sentence down in my notebook. If your imagination is correct, what's the difference? And I think that that's really the way. I, I mean, I don't. I definitely don't want to speak for your for your father, especially after he was so amazingly eloquent. And I think he would agree with that, though. But it, but that's kind of almost the way that he made it seem to me was him saying, you know, whether or not I, I he he's saying at the end of it, it may. Let me run back. At the end of it, it seemed like he was saying. I don't think this was my imagination because it felt way too real to be something that was just created out of thin air. There were way too many elements of it that seemed real. There were way too many things that after it seemed real. Mm -hmm. But even if it was some sort of creation of the chemicals in my brain, what does it matter or what's the difference? Because I got the same or a better effect out of that to become who I am and learn what I've learned and be what I've become Mm-hmm. what's the difference and what does it matter? And that to me is phenomenally interesting and fascinating. And again, like kind well, of envious. I think it's beautiful. And on some level, what's the difference between that and the way that we rely on our senses all day, every day? Yeah. All we have to go on is what our eyes and our ears and our nose and our tongue and our, you know, and our nerves tell us anyway. Right. And we know that those things are, can be fooled. Yeah, they are all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. You know, our senses fail us all the time. So on some level, his senses, so to speak, yeah, gave him this information, this knowledge, this experience. And if anything, it felt more real than the information you get on a day-to-day real life, so to speak, basis from your sight and your, you know, your smell and your taste and your everything and you're hearing right which is another thing that i wish i would have realized during the interview but i didn't think of until i got home later that oh, night sure. so he mentioned at the beginning that so the reason he went into a coma and eventually his heart stopped was because of an extremely high fever right which ruptured both of his eardrums right right and i asked him during the interview so were you deaf when you left the hospital and he said yes he also mentions that while he was having this experience with the entity and he was flying and looking down on cities and all the crazy stuff he was talking about, he was hearing things. He was hearing both music, which he mentioned several times as being important. And I wish I would have pressed him harder on that too, in terms of what specifically were you hearing? Because he mentions the music that he heard during that experience. He's heard it throughout other points in his life. Right. Like he can call it back. No, like he's, he's literally heard it. Like in the, in the real world. Yes. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do a follow up (laughs) after Spencer goes, Hey, real quick question. Yeah. And there, there was just so much going on that there were questions that I had that didn't get asked. But so he was, he was deaf while he was having this experience. Totally deaf. Could not hear. He was incapable of taking in sound. Right. He was yeah, hear- if you have holes in your eardrum, you can't... He didn't have eardrums. Right. Yeah, they were gone. Right. He was hearing sound or music during this experience, but he also references or mentions that he heard his grandmother's voice talking about him. So, And one of, I think, the, the hypotheses about 
what's happening during a near-death experience and yep. how people can take in this information when they're clinically dead is that maybe there's activity in the brain or that some of your senses continue operating after your heart has stopped for a certain amount of time. Right. So, yeah, your heart stopped pumping blood, but there's enough oxygen and enough electricity and enough blood running through your brain that it can keep going for another 30 seconds or whatever. Right, right. But that couldn't have been the case because he would not have been able to hear any sound that was happening in that room at that time. Right. Because he literally didn't have eardrums, unfortunately. So is that just another level to the hallucination or the experience or whatever we want to call it that he was not only hallucinating his current location with this entity, but also some separate location back to where he was he had been and what likely might've been happening in that place at that time. Right. I, I don't know, man, that one, that one got me. It's, I mean, it's interesting too, you know, going back into the need to maybe investigate that music thing further is I almost think it's legitimately the first thing he says. Yeah. Like he says, it, it, it seemed I, I was lifted up and I heard music. Like it's mm-hmm. like the one of the first things that comes out of his out of his mouth in, in when he tells the story. Which is interesting because if that's a starting point, it means it's significant to the experience from just from like a from like a broad swath kind it's, of point. It's also something that doesn't come up I don't think I saw that in any of the probably hundred stories of near death experiences that I read. Oh in, interesting. Be it uh, Raymond Moody's work or any of the other stuff that I've come across online. A lot of people report hearing like a ringing or a buzzing or some sort of sound. Yep. Almost. I can't think of one where someone reported hearing music. music. And it seemed like, I agree. It, it sounded like that was a, a crucial part of the experience. It was for like him. a kickoff to it. Yeah. I mean, he, he was like, so I like almost, I mean, not exactly, but it was like the first point to him. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to ask him more about that at some point. Yeah, and we we have like so many things to follow up on on this show, and we we will um, we will continue to ho- however that is whether that means we could do a part three in a few months or or whatever. But we'll um, we'll suss out some of those details for sure. Um, so <laughs> I feel like it would be criminal to take any element of of your father's experience away from him, and we're not going to do that. Um, but also don't let them listen to the rest of this episode because, <laughs> because, because what we kind of want to do, I think is just probe a little bit deeper into the concept of medically, scientifically, uh, scientifically devils, devils advocately, mm-hmm. not a word, but obviously like, like looking at what could be the cause of of these things, right? Like we, if, we have if, a set of experiences. They have overlapping characteristics. There's plenty of them documented. They look this type of way. So is there is there a reason for this? Is there a is there a value that we can assign to this, whether that be a divine one or a religious one or an intellectual one or a scientific or a biological one? Mm-hmm. You know, like how do we I don't know, like how do we, how do you reason these things happening and that level of like repeated repeated uh experience yeah and i think there are a lot of people have tried to suss out like from uh from our current understanding of medicine and science what could 
explain what people are experiencing and what people report during near-death experiences? Is it some continued function of the brain? Is it, uh, you know, uh, some sort of extreme stress reaction? Is it a hallucination? Is it whatever? Right. Um, and yeah, I think it's only fair to dive into some of that and some of the possible explanations. Um, and I, I really don't think it takes anything away from anyone's experience because it is such a unique experience to that person at the same time. And, and as we'll get into these, there are maybe potentially scientific medical explanations for certain elements of these stories. I've yet to come across anything that would explain an all encompassing explanation for a near death experience. I, um, I completely, I completely agree with you. And I also feel like, um, there aren't even any scientists who play in this space who would say even remotely that they have a, yeah, a, a, a good reason, yeah, you know, like no one has a complete explanation yet. Right. It wouldn't even be like you and I siding with like, well, there's a scientist who thinks this, it's more them being like, we've got some sort of takes on some of those, um, some of those characteristics that are shared by, by Moody's, uh, Moody's documentation, mm-hmm. which I'm going to go through in a second here. Um, but for the most part, it kind of seems like all of the, all of the experts, doctors, researchers, etc., who've touched on this whole thing are kind of like, yeah, that does like a and B, but it doesn't really do C and D or it does like, mm-hmm. you know, C and D, but it doesn't really do a and B. Like, yeah, they, they kind of, they can see parts of it, but it, no one, no one feels like they're like, no, we've got this figured out. This yeah, is just no one like has the whole picture yet. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to start maybe with uh, Dr. Michael Persinger's stuff? Do you want me to start with Persinger, or do you want to start with Persinger? Because I feel like you did a little more research into Persinger specifically, okay, than I did. Sure, uh, and yeah, you can interrupt and intervene whenever you, whenever you see fit. Yeah, cool. Uh, Persinger is a professor of neuroscience at the Consciousness Research Lab, which sounds super lit. Yeah. Oh boy, a place to hang out uh-huh. with at some, uh, some Lar- Laurentian University, and he studies the the links between electromagnetic fields and hallucinations. Yes. Um, specifically as it relates to well, in the stuff that I'm going to cover, specifically as it relates to ghosts. And hauntings and feelings of other presences, yeah, which is a common, uh, commonly reported aspect of near-death experiences. A very quick side note: uh, Michael Persinger is seventy-one years old and still alive today. Okay. Most of the people that we talk about on the podcast are no longer with us. If you have any way of getting us in touch with Michael Persinger and having him on the show so that we could interview him, 612-246-4614, call and either tell us uh, how to do that or also just leave us a voicemail about anything or email us at hi at whatifpodcast.com. Uh, we'd love to talk to him. Uh, obviously, we've looked at some of his work, and and we're going to talk about it right now. But if we would do a follow up and talk to him, if anyone he's, has, if any he's got way a spare God helmet laying around that we can borrow for a week, right? Yeah, that'd be terrific. Um, he started his work in 1996, 
when he was inve- investigating a report of hauntings in a couple's home. Mm-hmm. They had a little ghost infestation problem. Ghosty. Uh, they reported hearing breathing and whispering sounds, which I think would be the worst kind of ghost haunting. Oh boy. I'd rather have yelling, man. <laughs> right? I would way rather just, just hear screaming. Run up and punch me in the room. face. Yeah. yeah. Throw, ra- push my toaster off the counter every morning. I don't whatever. <laughs> whispering just, next to me. Oh boy. You gotta go. Oh, you gotta go. Man. Oh um, it's giving me just think about it. All also right. reported that something or someone was touching them while they slept. Nah, bro. Yep. No, bro. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Uh, turns out there was an abundance of electromagnetic activity going on in their house due to it being old and very poorly wired, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, having a lot of ungrounded circuits, and they were overloading a lot of those circuits with appliances and such. Yeah, yeah. So they just sort of had a, a, a shit show in terms of the electromagnetism going throughout their house all over the place yeah including uh, in their heads yes quite a bit was going right in the old brain piece. Un- unfortunately unbridled emf <laughs> all up in your brainstem uh just punking your whole game <laughs> so turns out the areas of their house where they reported the most creepy whispering and foot touching <laughs> Uh, were, that sounds so awful. Were the areas where there were the most or the strongest electromagnetic fields. Right. Um, as soon as they rewired some things, grounded some things, stopped plugging 9 million refrigerators into the same power strip. That's uh, a <laughs> The hauntings and the whisperings and the foot touching disappeared. Yes. So Dr. Persinger thought that maybe he would be able to recreate these sensations in a lab setting. Right, right. And he set up uh, back at his lab at the Consciousness Research Lab. Uh-huh. Which might have to be the new name of our studio. Oh, man. Uh, he set up a soundproof, lightproof room. And he had participants in this study that he conducted sit in the room and wear a helmet that blasted uh, very short, like fractions of a second, long bursts of complex electromagnetic patterns right into their brains. Yeah. Um let's go. Just kind of see where this Yeah, leads. just kind of to see what happens, to mm-hmm. see if they reported any uh any ghosts whispering to them. Yep, yep. Um his hypothesis was that exposure to electromagnetic fields can reduce the amount of melatonin in the brain which melatonin acts as an anti-convulsive. So he hypothesized that a lack of melatonin caused by strong electromagnetic fields Mm -hmm. could make one more susceptible to temporal lobe seizures. Word. And that these seizures were what were causing these weird feelings and experiences. Sure, sure, sure. Um, He also added that the loss of a loved one or friend or someone close to you uh, can increase stress, which can also lead to lower amounts of melatonin in your brain. Got it. Yes. Therefore, you get stories of my husband died, but now he's talking to me through the TV and blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah. Right, 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 right. So with this this helmet and this dark soundproof room... Uh, 80% of the people who participated in the study had some sort of 
uh, hallucination or experience. Which is, again, a sort of significant amount. I would say very, yeah. More more than significant, yes. Yeah. Um, Easily significant amount. Which included things like, quote, I began to feel a presence of people, but I could not see them. They were along my sides. They were colorless, gray-looking people. I knew I was in the chamber, meaning the the room where this was happening, but it was very real. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, quote, I felt something get a hold of my leg and pull on it, distort it, and drag it up along the wall. Yikes! So Damn, that would be terrible, though, right? (laughs) Well... In this setting where you know you're supposed to be hallucinating, it would be it would be scary. Yeah. It would be unnerving, but you also know that like if I take this thing off my head, it's probably gonna stop. Right. I can leave this room. And I was sort of expecting this, so maybe I can, you know, rationalize it in some way. Yeah, it's it's a lot better to hallucinate it, after you've taken mushrooms than hallucinate and not right. know you took some mushrooms. Right. right. If I'm sitting alone in bed at night and these things are happening to me, it's a million times worse. Oh boy, is it ever. So he's maybe able been able to recreate some of the things that people would report during a near death experience, like feeling outside of their own body. Right. Um, or feeling a presence around them or touching them or interacting with them. Right. Without necessarily being able to see said presence. Right. Uh one very minor alien tie in. I said there weren't gonna be any here the, we go. But the quote said gray looking people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So just yeah, okay. Very Gra- quick aside. Grailian. No, some of this stuff could maybe also apply to abduction sure. Uh, sure, sure reports. Sure. Cuz a lot uh, there's a lot of overlap. That's all. Uh yeah. No, you're totally right. And feeling I think, a presence of people that may or may not actually be there, kind of seeing things kind of not. Definitely. Feeling like you're being moved around. Definitely. And I and we're gonna tie this back in, but I but I actually want to go like just slightly further out before we tie back in, yeah. uh, really quickly, to say that uh, Persinger's work and a lot of the work around these sort of types of experiences and feelings that people have kind of fall into this category of scientific research that people refer to as neurotheology. Um which is also referred to as spiritual neuroscience. Okay. Which is essentially science that tries to explain experiences and behaviors that people identify as religious in nature, but doing it through a lens of science. So, so looking for a scientific explanation for religious experiences. Yes, exactly. And, 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 some of these are just for example, um, and again, because these kind of relate back to uh, some of these near death experiences. Um, so they're, they're they're trying to explain things like uh, perception of time, fear, or self consciousness being dissolved, mm-hmm. spiritual awe, oneness with the universe. Okay ecstatic trance sudden enlightenment and altered states of consciousness so you know there's this is we could do 
we could do multiple episodes on neurotheology as or even like just, a concept and even just defining all those things you just listed. Exactly. And all of the scientists who have done work in that field. Yeah. But I do think it's I do think it's um I do think it's relevant to take Persinger's work, which I think is very fascinating and totally related to what we're talking about right now, as you say, like symptoms of a near th- a near death experience that he has both tried to observe and replicate in his science. And kind of like the biggest pod of work that those fall into is trying to sort of figure out, not necessarily specifically from a near-death experience place, but also some of those elements of things that people feel like that mm-hmm. safety and that godlike being and all of those things. People are essentially trying to go, what's maybe happening in the brain when people are observing these things or feeling right. these things or trying to... You know, trying to trying to go. I I feel like I am. I've I've had an epiphany. Am I at one with the universe? Like, is there something going on in the brain that some of us, you know, to go back to your point from last episode where we were talking about the only frame of reference that we have in our 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 live options. Yeah, our live options. Mm-hmm. Sometimes for some people, the only live option they have when they're feeling some of these symptoms is well, it's God or it's religion or right. or the version of God that I understand. And some of this work and this science is sort of aiming at going sans live options, or if you didn't know that you had your live options, what might... Is there a deeper underlying right. level to that? What, Something else is going on? What psychologically yeah. and cranially and neurologically would, could be That maybe goes through things. the filter of your culture and your religion and your experiences, but there's a deeper Chemical, underlying issue thing. happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Well, and so many people do report... I would say the majority of people report near-death experiences as being a spiritual or a religious experience in some yeah, in yeah. some capacity. Your dad included. I mean, almost almost every story that I that I read features some religious, spiritual, or at least cosmic element to it of, of sure. that feeling of being one or having some deeper knowledge or you know existing uh, with a with a greater divine yep. something. Yep, totally. Um, I kind of want to, I kind of want to shift from sort of that, that, and I guess this isn't even really a shift. It's more of a, it's more of a tip from saying, Hey, you know, people are looking for brainwave reasons for things that are happening in those religious experiences to being like, Hey, there's a couple of people who, again, as we talked about earlier in this episode, um, we don't have a great a great reasoning behind why all near death experiences are happening, but there are some people who have tried to look at, you know, again like the the, the nine things that Moody talked about, yeah, um, and gone sort of categorizing some of it, categorizing some of it, and and trying to do it from from a place of science. So okay. um, I think uh, we're going to take a really fast break and then we're going to come back in a quick second here and uh, we'll burn through some of those ideas, some of those actual sort of chemical biological reasons that things are happening uh, or could potentially be happening and uh, and see maybe why our brain could potentially be accountable for some of those near-death experiences. Uh, we'll be right back on the What It Podcast. That is crazy. We are 
in the midst of a delightful part two. It's been a doozy. Oh, real doozy. We're talking about what if you died, <laughs> which sounds really heavy, and I guess it kind of is. But um, I, I like that the episode called What If You Died was our first two-parter, and we're talking mostly about near-death experiences, though. Yeah. And, yeah. Look at us. Hey, look at us. Also, go... if. If you made it this far, if you're listening to me say this right now and you didn't listen to the episode before this, you're a bad person and you need to fix it. So what go, in God's holy name are you blathering about? Exactly. Also probably what you're thinking right now. Yeah, yeah, that is exactly what you're thinking. So go back and listen to that episode. Um, but as it as it relates to, uh, to near-death experiences, we kind of wanted to talk about what has been posited in the face of these actual experiences as like what might be happening in our brains. What the hell might actually be going on if it's not you what being carried God's away. God's name. Yeah. If it's not you being carried away in God's name to, uh, to By be a shown. real deity. Yeah. Yeah. I left out the stories of near-death experiences where people were being tossed into caves and poked repeatedly with pitchforks by demons, by the way, because there are a few of those out there. Well, some, some people have really negative near-death experiences, it turns out. To your point from the last episode about being like, if it was a religious thing, some people might have really terrible experiences. There are a few of them. That sounds like There that. are a couple. Being poked by demons with a pitchfork <laughs> kind of sounds like hell to me, so maybe God's real and... One woman, when she Oops, came back I in... I repent One woman, everything. when she came back into her body, uh, the first thing she saw were her hands on fire because oh. she had recently departed hell. Well, that's a huge bummer. So be nice to each other, folks. Please... Please, so you don't please. get <laughs> repeatedly prodded by demons Look, for the rest of eternity. Our whole thing here is like, just don't, just, just be cool. Can everybody yeah. be cool for like a second, and like we'll be fine, right? God. All right. So what's actually going on when you die and see crazy stuff? Uh, we're gonna link to this article in uh, the show notes uh, slash the episode, but um, the the title of this article uh, it was published in the Atlantic uh, in like the uh, ocean. Uh, well, I don't think many people would read it if it was published published in the Atlantic Is Ocean. Article for dolphins. Uh, <laughs> do you think all dolphins are concerned with near death experiences? Bro, dolphins die. Everything I mean, dies, bro. That's true. That's true. They They're might, smart and they die. They, they probably might have, be. Oh, what if dolphins had near death experiences? Uh, maybe part seven. Part seven. Yeah, we're gonna just keep blowing this one Sorry, down. I'm gonna turn my mic off for a while. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Um, so in the publication, the Atlantic, not the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, there's an article from April of 2015 called The Science of Near-Death Experiences Empirically av- Investigating Brushes with the Afterlife. And I think it's um, I think it's a really phenomenal piece. It's extremely long. It's I mean, a lot of the Atlantic stuff is, but it's one of the longer ones I've ever read from them. But I, I really highly encourage you, if you give a solitary shit about anything we've talked about so far today, you will really, really enjoy this article. And I'm only going to take a, a, a handful of small uh, high points out of this whole thing. Um but um show me what you got show me what you got um so i think i think what i think is really cool well maybe cool is not the right word but what i think is very delightful is that they refer to uh near-death experiences as hypothetically quote glitches in a dying brain okay which is a which is an interesting way to kind of look at it why are they so similar though well i I think the idea is that um if multiple people's brains are dying multiple people's brains might experience the same set of glitches which might cause them to have a similar set of experiences reasonable is is kind of what they're positing um so there's 
so there's four main scientific positions for some, again, not all, not most, not the overlapping elements of near-death experiences. Okay. And those are? They look like this. Uh, number one, out-of-body experiences. Yeah. Uh, there is a part of our brains, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this. Make fun of me all you want on Twitter. Uh, Abdullah Oblongata. Nah, it's not, actually. Uh, temporoparietal junction. The tem... tem- Temporal parietal junction. I read I'm about actually, that. That sounds right. I'm actually pretty sure yeah. that's relatively correct. Surprisingly so. Um, but the the temporal parietal junction is the part of your brain, which I never knew this, and I think it's so fascinating, is a part of your brain that takes data from your five senses and like the organs inside of your body and gives you your holistic perception of so your body. It integrates all of those into one experience that yeah. we can understand. So if you like if you're sitting here listening to this podcast right now and you're thinking about like how your feet feel and how your stomach feels and don't how let the ghosts touch them. How you don't let you, don't don't get tickled by them ghosts, yo. Uh but you you're thinking about what you're smelling and seeing and feeling and 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 you your perception of yourself in the space that you're in, whether you're driving to work or you're in your bed or you're in your car, whatever your integrated experience, your integrated experience is compiled by this one part of your brain called the temporal parietal junction. And essentially what, what some scientists have posited is that, um, in traumatic experience, whether they be biological illness related, physically like car accidents or car crashes or, or, or car accidents and crashes would be the same thing. Uh, stuff uh, running into other stuff uh, with yeah, people inside with of people it, people inside of the vehicles. No. Um, but, but anytime that, you know, a, a serious and traumatic event happens in your body and in your life, that part of the brain can be damaged. Um, both chemically and physically and whether through chemical influx or physical influx, um, the damaging of that part of your brain can affect the way that your brain perceives your body and some scientists posit. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not building a case for these things. I'm saying that this is the case that has been built by people much smarter than me about why we might have and see some of the overlapping things that we've talked about. Yeah. They say that this could affect your overall perce- uh, perception of your body to the point where it could create an out-of-body experience. So you, you're you're sort of disconnected from the way that your brain generally perceives. Your normally integrated you senses, senses have now been disintegrated. Disintegrated and you are above them or around them or outside of them and you are seeing things from a completely different perspective than you may, maybe normally would. Uh, real quick, I'm going to pass you a book. Yeah. And I want you to tell me uh, oh God, yes, here we go. yes or no, should oh. we do a full episode based <laughs> oh on no. this book? All right. Uh, maybe we should we should create a, um, we'll, we'll create a Twitter poll. Astral Dynamics, the complete book of out-of-body experiences. Wow, I feel like this is this, is this episode. Yeah, right? Is it not? Uh, shout out to Chris. Oh man, there no, it's, are diagrams. It's, it's a step-by-step guide. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, shout out to Chris Hooks who lent me that book like five years ago. Wait, are and you I saying for- that we can like- I forgot to ever give it back to him. Are you saying we can like create our own? It's a step-by-step guide to Whoa. to having an out-of-body experience. All right, I'm going to keep it a hundred with you all here. This is a fucking trip. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, this is about like brushing certain parts of your body no, and it's, rubbing things it's in circles. Very, very you and thorough. your energy body. Very thorough. All right. All yeah. right. All right. Um, wow, bro. This is not a fucking game. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we could do a whole episode. I think we could definitely do a section where we encourage each other into or out of some of these positions and see if we, I'll, I'll tickle uh, your feet for you if you need it. I, you know, I'm probably good All on right, that cool. specifically. Right. Um, but, th- but thank you. That's very sweet of you to, to offer. Um, okay, so maybe uh, our temporal parietal whatchamajiggers get crossed with our Abdullah Oblongatas and we feel like our senses aren't lining up. Yeah, that is part of it. Um, okay. Another one that, and again, only a part, not co-signing it. I'm going to stop uh, qualifying these Yeah, we're not advocating any of these positions. We're yep. just uh, reading shit off the internet yeah. because we're not capable of doing our own research. If you, if you think you we're guys experts, know, yeah, you guys know by now that yeah. we're dumb yeah, and we, we just say stuff. We're, we're out here. You're not here for research <laughs> peer reviewed anything. I mean, you, you might be kind of, but like, I just don't want to, I don't want anyone to like keep us beholden to things. We're that we reading have, Wikipedia we're, we're with whiskey in our it. hands. <laughs> like there's nothing. Get over it. Hey, 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 we're better than that. Okay, no, so so number two. All right, so number one, your temp, temporal parietal junction could be damaged and could create an out-of-body experience. Number two. Cool. Um, I mean, not cool, but yes. But but yeah, um, tunnel vision or the seeing of tunnels or the going towards or away from tunnels, <laughs> I, I've seen a tunnel before. Right. Did I, did I die? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Um, but too much carbon dioxide can like, that's Uh, what happens when people are fainting or passing out. Sometimes those are, those are influxes of carbon dioxide in your blood system. So seeing, seeing that, having that in your blood system, having that actually, uh, in in, actually in your eyes and the, in the blood capillaries in your eyes can cause, uh, cause you to have that kind of faded narrowing of your your field of vision. Um, and also too. You have to you have to think too about if you're in a hospital situation where you're under bright lights and there's like a lot of intense things going on, you might have rushes of adrenaline. Then you add on uh, a lack of, or, or excuse me, if you add in a an addition of carbon dioxide, and then you have that tunneling in that situation, you can get kind of some of those more aggressive uh, elements of of you know how you might see or feel things. Heck. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Heck indeed. Sounds bad. Yep. Okay. Um, number three. Um, would you die though? Like if, if you had entirely too much, would you, would you be out of here? Too much carbon dioxide? Yeah. yeah it could kill you for sure. Yeah. Um, it's also one of those things where depending on <laughs> this is a really fucked up sentence as I'm about to say it, depending on how you're dying, uh, you might you might have more or less of any ones of these things. So head trauma, you might be more susceptible to a uh, temporal parietal junction damage yep, element. Yep. Um, if you're suffocating in some capacity in a closed environment, you might be having too much carbon dioxide. God damn it! Uh-huh. Uh, number three is uh, we often hallucinate when we have a lack of oxygen. That's a totally normal thing that happens on a semi-regular basis to people. Um, so if you, if you're, if you are, if you have a lack of oxygen for any reason, strangulation or autoerotic asphyxiation, I don't think we need to like definitely get into that world, but like, yeah, maybe that's a way that you, that can makes be it done. all the more fun though. When you start hallucinating, uh, drowning, going underwater, etc. cetera, <laughs> um, skate right over there. Yeah, I know I am. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely moving forward. I'm not letting you derail me into that world. Um, 
drowning, etc. If if you have that lack of oxygen, you could be hallucinating, and and that could take you into some of those worlds of beautiful countrysides with beautiful rivers and people and friends and all those things. Okay. Um, and then and then number four uh, is um, so there's some science behind this one, which we'll get to in a second. But essentially, um, the brain under stress can produce a lot of chemicals that it doesn't normally produce like dmt like dmt uh which we can get to shortly here but one of those things is also just a rush of endorphins um so that good feeling the, that a lot of people experience peaceful, that, yeah, calm, peaceful positive warm calm. feeling yeah yeah um you, you shows up in a lot of stories right and and in fact like your dad kind of mentions it where he says it maybe it's a protection mechanism that your brain is employing in a in a situation that says you know, I, I understand that a bad thing is happening to you right now, and I'm going to employ everything I've got in my power. Oh, look it, over here. Exactly. Look at this really yeah. nice thing Isn't that I created shiny? for you. Yeah, yeah, like, are your eardrums blown out and you have a 105-degree fever and your grandmother <laughs> is crying for you to come back to the world? <laughs> and you and your heart stopped? Yeah, You're and your heart, literally dead right and now? And your heart is literally stopped? Uh, maybe don't think or feel those things if I can... Check out this cool music, and uh, here's what Prague looks like. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Is yeah. this is this enough of a distraction for right. you to right. not hurt? Like, right. let's do it. Um, but where is that coming from? Well, right. There's that. Um, is that all in a seven year old's brain? Because that's crazy too. That is definitely crazy too. Um, that one of the one of the interesting elements. This doesn't go directly to endorphins, um, but this also kind of goes to the the glitches of a dying brain. So this is kind of a number five. Um, there was a, a study at the University of Michigan that was published in 2013. And essentially, this is going to sound really fucked up. If you like animals a lot, you might want to stop listening right now. But essentially, what they did was they took rats that they had anesthetized and they stopped their hearts to see what happened to the rats after their hearts had stopped in terms of what happened like in their brains and in their bodies. They were like testing Testing death in an animal to see what happened inside of them. Boo! Yeah, I know, I know. It, it's a little... Oh, whatever, rats suck. Well, that is also kind of true. <laughs> yeah, why did they have to do it in Michigan? Couldn't they do it in, like, downtown Manhattan and, right. like, get them out of the yeah, subway? plenty. No, those yeah. guys are too smart. No, oh, well, there's that. Um, but within, uh, within 30 seconds, the rats' brain signals flatlined, but before they flatlined... Uh, they spiked with an intensity, this is a quote from that Atlantic article, by the way, that I recommended earlier, with an intensity that suggested that different parts of the brain were communicating with one another even more actively than when the rats had ever been awake. And so- Tapping into that universal consciousness, son. And that is another big part of it. Rat God. Yep. Rat God was communicating yep, with them. Yep, yep. Um, but there is, there is something to be said for the possibility that- um, Essentially, a brain as it is dying is searching to not die right yeah. before it goes. There's something really massively wrong here, and I'm about to go out, and I need to not go out, or I'd, at least I need to look for like any remote option I have in my power yeah. to not last go out. Last ditch effort to make this work, yeah. right? And then that last ditch effort to make things work, the brain functions at a level of significance and interaction and communication with other parts of the brain that are not normally functioning in that way to go, can you help me? Can you help me? Can anyone mm-hmm. help me? Can we get our way out of this somehow? And the hypothesis is that in that process of that that brain activity spike before you actually leave things, that the brain may in fact be speaking to its 
disparate parts in a way that is creating a really wild set of experiences for a being inside of it that has never experienced those things before, which also just for what it's worth is partially uh, what some people who defend this theory relate back to. Do you remember how we talked about when your dad was like um, talking about how real it was and how it was almost like realer than real? Like it, yeah. it was such a real experience to him. A lot of people describe the experience as being more real than anything yes. they've actually experienced. Yes. Yeah. Some some people who um, who support a theory like this are essentially saying part of the reason that people feel that is because your brain is literally in this moment functioning in a way that it's never functioned before. Yeah. Your senses are working together in a way that your senses have never functioned together and before. probably wouldn't be sustainable over a longer period of time. Not in the least, yeah. and 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 may without the trauma of the brain's potential fear of dying in that moment never be reachable again yeah. so it's that's what makes it such a spike in consciousness in every capacity maybe try a little bit earlier next time jerk brain yeah maybe would, don't wait until i'm actually dead to try and figure out what's going on and fix it would love that yeah can we start like five minutes earlier next can we, time can we turn that dial up right, like right you know i you know i don't need it to be at the top but if we could just turn it up a little bit that'd be great all right I feel like we've gone pretty out there. I mean, I don't know if it's that far out there. It's it's these are the these are some of the reasons why people think uh, chemically we might be thinking and feeling and experiencing things we do during near death experiences. I don't know how out there they are. I, I will say before you get nothing way we've far nothing out we've there, talked about has not been out there so far. No, that's true. But but I but I think that um I think what's interesting about these two though just before you go I know where you want to go but so I'm going to hold you before you go there. Okay. Uh, the the thing that I think is interesting about them as it relates to the real experiences that are in Ray's books and that are in Mary's books and that are a part of your dad's experience is that none of those things a have been able to be scientifically backed up by anything. Like we can't, even though, even though we know that, um, you know, damage to that certain part of the brain can create an out of body experience. We don't have science, scientific experience that scientific experiments that back that specific take up, even right. though we know that when people are deprived of CO2, we don't know, or that they see tunnel vision. We don't know that people who are dying, in that moment are being deprived of CO2 and that's why they're seeing those things. Like we don't have causality for those things that are evidenced by real experiments. Also to integrate all of the, those things to create what people report during near death experiences, it would yes. be seven, eight, nine different causes. Right. Totally. You have to be deprived of oxygen and have an influx of carbon dioxide. Right. And have chemicals released in your brain. To and be able to tell that one story. On down the line, just to have this one integrated experience that you're reporting. Definitely. And I think the other thing that's really interesting, too, is that there's a lot of instances that I've seen as we've been researching this topic of people who have had some of the symptoms of a near-death experience related to some of the, the, the biological reasoning that is mm -hmm. quote unquote posited to, to, to cause that, but couldn't have possibly had that. So to your point of like, um, yeah. there, there were, there have been many people who had no evidence of, of having oxygen deprivation other than the fact right. that 
they 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 died on a table, but they were immediately given CPR, so they're at least getting air into their lungs. Right. But had these wild hallucinations that that again, like science tries to explain as well. When you when when you're without air, you can see things and feel things, but. There was no real evidence of them actually having that experience or that experience to get them to that point. I need to pull that sound of my dad saying, I don't know. Oh, for everything, bro. (laughs) It's that is a that is that is a take that applies to pretty much every conversation we have and we'll continue to have. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. All right. Um, all right, man. So 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 that's grounded in some version of reality, but very imperfect. I feel like you might take us to a further land of imperfect. Show me what you got. All right, let's go. All right. Are you familiar with Terrence McKenna? I am familiar with Terrence McKenna. Okay, and I'm actually surprised and a little bit disappointed in myself and in Eric Mason (laughs) that it has taken until our 17th episode for Mr. McKenna to make his first appearance. Have we not referenced him at all I don't think we ever have. All right. All right. Well, here uh, we go. Terrence McKenna is one of the most badass human beings of all time. <laughs> Dude is a genius. Uh, well, you know, yeah, yeah, no, he's a genius. He is undeniably a genius. He's just also kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, he also. <laughs> the line is thin. We all know. Absolutely. You can be both. Um, he loved DMT and hallucinogens in general mm-hmm. more than any human being ever has in the history of human beings. Yes. He put forth this hypothesis um, that perhaps DMT is sort of a uh, a bridge between this world and another one. Can you quickly explain DMT to people who don't know what that is? Yes. Uh, dimethyltryptamine. Yep. Uh, it is a an extremely strong hallucinogen. Uh, I, I believe the strongest and fastest acting hallucinogen um it it is usually experienced in a synthetic form that is smoked resulting in a 10 to 15 minute um very vivid very intense trip trip uh in which you are no longer part of this planet (laughs) you are unaware of any of your surroundings you not, are no longer where you were when you before you took a hit of it. Yeah, not to go too Joe Rogan on the world, but we do have some friends who've done some DMT. It might be interesting to do a DMT episode and have some sure. friends on who've done it and it talk is, it through. Neither of us have, but yeah. we do have friends who definitely have. It is also the active uh, ingredient in ayahuasca. Um, yes. It's used in a lot of uh, South American... Uh, traditional ceremonies and such. Right. Um, it is also uh, naturally produced inside our brains. Mm-hmm. So it, it occurs in, in many plants. Uh, it can be made synthetically, but it does occur in our own brains. And it's found in large quantities in uh, cerebrospinal fluid. Um, and it's also thought to be produced in the lungs, in the eye, and in the uh, pineal gland? Pineal gland. Pineal gland. Pineal. Rick Strassman is someone who's done a lot of research around DMT and its natural production in the body. I thought you were going to be like, Rick is a guy that I work with who's done Rick a does shitload drugs. of DMT. Yeah. No, and he thought, 
or has, has uh, posited that DMT might explain some elements of the near-death experience. Okay. Um, he suggested that when you have a near-death experience, your brain releases some of the DMT that is naturally stored in the pineal gland. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates some of the hallucinogenic aspects um, of, of a near-death experience. Yeah, yeah. He also proposed that the purpose of DMT is to help people transition from a living state to a post-death state, Mm. whatever that might look like. There's really no science behind that. That's sort of speculation. Right. um, Because there's really no way to know what happens after you die. Right. Okay. So DMT makes you hallucinate. Right. It's very strong. Yep. It can be found in plants. It can be made synthetically. It also exists in our brains all the time. Yep. So Terrence McKenna, who smoked probably more DMT than anyone who has ever existed. Yeah. Pro- uh, probably probably far and away, right? I mean. I would think so. As, yeah. far as, as far as we're remotely aware of. He had this to say about DMT and its relation to the afterlife and potentially the near-death experience. All right. Something goes on in the DMT flash that I don't think anyone can bring back. There is at the core of the experience something is revealed that is so appalling that nobody can bring it back into ordinary reality. And that's why it's hard to understand because, as you know, I've done it a number of times and every time I approach it, it scares me shitless. I cannot approach it any other way. And it's physical. I mean, my palms sweat. I can't hold the pipe. My hand shakes. I wish I hadn't gotten myself into this situation. I fear it like death itself. That's the clue, folks. Uh, I think that what happens, and I've reached this opinion by, by reason and rationalization, not by direct experience... I think that what happens at the center of the mandala of that experience is that you do understand that these are souls. You have some kind of experience which converts you to this view beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm not saying you meet your dead grandmother, but it's something like that. And that experience is simultaneously so... Um, affirming and at the same time so paradigm shattering that you can't you can't retain it you you return to this world with a story of jeweled self-transforming basketballs and Fabergé eggs and a lesson in hyper language but there is a moment I think where you find out something truly truly paradigm shattering that you can't even tell yourself it's such an appalling revelation and the only thing I can think of that would fill that bill is something about the nature of life and death. That you actually go under the board, you find out the thing which nobody is ever supposed to find out in this world. And I suspect it's what shamans know. That, that a shaman is a person who knows the unspeakable secret. And once you know it, you know, there's no going back. I mean, you become fey, enchanted, 
you're touched by the other. You now are a part of fairyland. And this gives you, I don't know what it gives you, charisma, magical power, healing, the possibility to heal. But it also sets you apart from your fellows because they don't know from it. They don't know. I mean, science can't survive in that environment for half a minute. The entire construct of Western reason disappears into that dimension like hurling an ice cube into a blast furnace. You know, it just can't survive that encounter. If flying saucers were to land on the south lawn of the White House tomorrow, it wouldn't change the fact that DMT is the weirdest thing in the universe. Wow! <laughs> All right. Uh, the the Whoa. out the out ness of Terrence McKenna aside, he he brings yeah, up yeah. I mean, he brings up a point that I I was thinking about when uh, I was listening to my dad's story of maybe we experience things on a level that our brain can interpret them on. Sure. And so maybe that image of a bright white light or your ancestors waiting across the bridge for you or whatever it is that you see and can relate back isn't what's really happening. It's just the level that your brain can process it on. Yeah. Maybe there's a deeper truth about, you know, Terrence thinks it's some universal truth about what lays beyond death, what the afterlife is. Yeah. But maybe that's something that we in our current state can't process and can't understand and can't relate to each other through language. And right. there's there's only so much we can do to approximate it and we'll never really get to what that actual information is. Yeah. And and that kind of comes out in the way that people relate near death experiences. You know, almost everyone says, I can't really explain it or I, I, I don't have the words for it or it's indescribable or whatever. They're you know, they they all struggle with the the fact that there's there's not a good way to convey the emotion the feeling the knowledge that they right. that they were imparted with right. to someone else right and like yeah you know, my dad even said like i just know i don't know how to explain it yeah i can't verbalize it i don't even know how to rationalize it to myself i just know that it's i just know there right. and now it, it wasn't there and now it is and it forever will be I don't know what it is. I don't know how it got there. I don't know what to call it. Yeah. But now it's there. Right. And so maybe that's just our way of dealing with stuff that we're really not equipped to deal with. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think honestly, like whether it's, whether it's DMT and I, and I, and I do, you know, I do think that's the release of that chemical into the brain is an interesting take. I think, I think all of the scientific you know, sort of half explanations are sort of interesting contributions to the conversation I think all of the spiritual and religious takes are interesting contributions to the conversation. You know, whatever vehicle you choose to explain that sensation, it seems very concrete and inescapable that people have had, are having, and continue to have that sensation in that moment of... Of neither alive nor dead. And that and that to me is both or equally exciting and uh interesting and confusing and like terrifying all at the same time. Yeah. 
And and I think on some level it's uh, inherently incomprehensible too. Yeah. Which is kind of why I wanted to play that last bit from from Mr. McKenna. Like, Definitely. I, I think there is a limit to what to what we can understand about it. Right. And it leads me to this point of, you know, we've talked before about if the aliens ever come, I know, <laughs> fam, I know you want to be the first one on the ship. You're like, I want to, <laughs> I want to know what that feels yeah. like. Like yeah. that is a, that is a curiosity that you absolutely have. And I think that so many people speak about these experiences. I know that it's not universal. Obviously there have been some negative ones for sure, but I think that so many people speak about these experiences with such a level of like, um, it's almost like nostalgia, you know, it's, it's just like, it's overwhelmingly positive. It's overwhelmingly, it, it's, it's not just like, yeah, that was a good memory. It's like this life alteringly positive energy that has forever shifted the course of many of these people's lives. And like, in so many ways, when I hear these stories and even, you know, even McKenna's DMT version of things, it's like, it's a, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to almost die. I don't, I, I don't, think anyone does want to almost die because almost dying is too close to dying for most people but but that that um what is what i guess i perceive as like a benefit that again like most people have gotten from having those types of experiences is something i am like definitely kind of envious of that's something that i'm like oh man what a what a level of 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 peace and comfort and security yeah. and direction and um and honesty and like love and 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 these things that like existentially so many of us aim for and look for and we like pull towards and we hope for and we you know like we try right. to do all these things to like fill that hole and there are some people that <laughs> No, I got up, it. I'm good. Ended yeah. up almost dying. Got that, got that when I was seven. I'm yeah, straight. They yeah. had to almost die to do it. And yeah. unfortunately, I imagine a lot of people had an experience like this where they had it before they kicked all the way in the other direction. Well, we only hear the ones of the people who right, come back. Yeah. Right. But, hey, but for I, those- I died. I, I can't tell my story. Yeah, exactly. But for those that came back, it's like, man, they, they got to see it. And some days I wish- uh, I wish I could know what it was like if yeah. I died. <laughs> Shit, well, shit's probably fine. Yeah. It's it, probably fine when you die. Here's hoping. Sure sounds like it. Here's hoping. Except for the one guy who's getting poked by a demon with a <laughs> Yeah, pitch. don't, don't, yeah, he avoid the He was just forks. trying to sell books. He's making shit up. That's we're, probably, we're fine. That's probably we're fine. true. Everything else says He was otherwise. selling books to Christians. Yeah. He's good. Everything else says otherwise. He made it up. Um, All right, dude. It's been a trip. Yeah, it's been a hell of a it's ride. It's been a blast. I don't know that we'll um I don't know that we'll do many uh two parters. Um who knows? We may find ourselves in the world where we need to. Um but we hope you enjoyed this one. If you want to tell us how you did or didn't feel about the two parter and everything related to it, um let us know. Please leave us a voicemail. We've gotten some, we're gonna keep playing some. Uh we've got we've got emails and voicemails actually coming up in the next couple episodes. So we're about to play one for you, uh as soon as we sign off here. Yeah, that's true. Um, so really quickly, I'll just say, if you want to leave us a voicemail or an email to we talk to us about things. Care. No, we do care. The exact opposite <laughs> of what Spencer just played. We really care. We want you to let us know. 612-246-4614. Call. Leave us a voicemail. It'll ring a couple times. There's no chance anyone will answer it, so don't be scared. No, I okay, hold on, though. I installed Skype on my phone so I could get our voicemails and record them so we could play them on the show. Right, yeah. Uh, turns out if you install Skype on your iPhone and then someone calls that number, my phone rings. <laughs> Just straight up rings? Uh-huh. Oh, 
Well, you should un- uninstall that so we can well, just keep it on the computers. Yeah, I learned that today when Lydia called me and my phone started ringing. Oh, hilarious. So at least it was Lydia instead of some weirdo. But okay. So what's going to happen if is- If you want to just call me at any time, I guess you can also call that number and hey, maybe I'll answer depending hey, on what I'm doing. Hey, Spencer, what's up? Yeah. No, uh, Spencer's going to ins- uninstall that app, so don't worry. You're never going to like get a live person. <laughs> we just want you to call and leave a voicemail. 612-246-4614. Also, um, write us an email at- Hi, that's H-I at whatifpodcast.com if you want to talk to us. Outside of that, thank you all so much for listening. Again, hop on iTunes, leave us a rating and review, uh, and we just appreciate you guys so much. Um, And uh, until next week. Whoa, uh, daddy. (laughs) It's been the What If Podcast. We'll, uh, We'll see you next week.